there, there's been announcements in the bulletin, and I'm not going to be going over those. But let's pray for a few minutes, and then we can get into the message. So let's pray together. Father, Ferdine is gone. She's up in uh, Guatemala, and she's doing her missionary thing, but she is very good at it, and you have wired her to do that. So we ask that you would go with her, that you would empower her by your spirit, that she would touch many lives, and that through you, many would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there is a gal that is, is loves to do missions. She loves to be about the, the work of your kingdom in places other than Whatcom County. And for that, we are grateful. We just thank you for her and ask that you would bless her both when she's there and on her way back, that she would, she would come back here to us safely. Father, we pray for Amy as well. She comfort, uh, comfort for the loss of her sister. Father, we ask that you would comfort her as well as others. And there was a list of people last week that they're either on hospice or they have had a, a relative or close friend die. And we ask that you would provide a peace that passes all understanding for those, those families and those households. Part of that of those families is Mary Huff, as she is... Uh, Family has to now adjust to her without her being present. So, Father, we had, and there's a, another couple that I'm going to be meeting with this afternoon that has lost a loved one, and they are kind of searching what they should do and how this uh, last service is going to be. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would touch them and that there are people in that family that are not saved, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for these people from week to week that you would bless them, that you give them a heart for the Savior. We just thank you for, even though the, the small group that we have, the unity that is in this church and the joy that is returned to this church, and for that we want to thank you. Father, as we get into the Beatitudes, we ask that, that your spirit would prevail, that uh, the words that I speak would be true and right and edifying and bring glory and honor to our Savior. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we, have, we are now going to be getting into the fifth beatitude. We kind of got stuck there for a while on uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But it's been a while since we looked at these verses, so we'll start in verse 1 again and kind of give a, a review like we customarily do. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when they saw the crowd, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him and began to teach them, saying, and he opened up his mouth, and I told you probably by now, it's a couple months ago, <clears throat> Sal and I were in, in Israel, and the phrase that we use in Israel is, it is at or near. And we were on this mountain where the Beatitudes were taught, and we were either at the spot or we were very near to the spot because there just aren't that many spots. But it was this, this steep hillside with kind of small ravines that went down, and it's an auditorium where you could have tons and tons of people, and as I told you in, in the sermon past, he saw the crowd, they went on the mountainside and they sat down, <clears throat> and when a, a teacher sits down, that means they have something important to say. They don't teach from standing up. When Jesus sat down, then the people went, whoa, he has something of importance to tell us. And he gathered his disciples around him, and he is teaching his disciples primarily, but the crowds are a welcome addition. So he is teaching his disciples specifically. But obviously the crowds are overhearing what he has to say. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit is the opposite of self, 
self-sufficiency. It speaks of deep humility, recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt before a holy and righteous God. The second was, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this mourning is mourning for sin, knowing that if we are spiritually bankrupt, if we are not self-sufficient, that we have cause to mourn because sin separates us from the Savior. Verse 3, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. If you're spiritually bankrupt, if you are a sinner through and through, you will recognize who and what you are, and you will be humbled, and you will be meek, even though you have the power to be otherwise. I've used the expression that meekness is power under control. Verse 6, Blessed are those who, are hunger, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, And I gave one message on this, and then I talked about uh, one message of what it was like for a Jewish person to become well-versed in the law and all the stuff that they had to do when they were ages 4 to 12 and 12 to 15, 15 to 30, and then 30 and above. And and it was talked about a rabbi having authority and things like this. And then I spent two weeks in Hebrews chapter 6 about drifting from the faith. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ where we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will take great pains not to drift. And I use that expression and that visual picture of a a boat that's in a current, whether the current is strong or, or fast, it doesn't matter. But slowly they drift by the things that Jesus Christ is offering. Security and salvation and that dock represents that security of the boat, however quickly, drifts by and pretty soon it's out of sight. If a person is a believer that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, that will not happen. So the first four Beatitudes consist of of a grouping, okay? They they are one, they each, they, they address internal qualities and how we see ourselves before a holy and righteous God. The first four is how we see ourselves before a holy and righteous God And the next four are going to be the the fruit of our labors. First four is how we see ourselves. The second four is what are we going to do about it and how are we going to respond knowing those four things. So for me, to be a little transparent, this is a hard sermon because the sermon we're going to be giving this morning is blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. I'm a... I'm a hands-on, a tactile, I like to touch things and see things, and so if you want me to, if you want me to, to teach and tell you about facts, and as you probably know I like to talk about history, because those are facts and we can see things and we can look at country and geography and things like this, where now we're talking about a concept. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So I'm describing a concept, and in one hand you say, well, You should be merciful here, but maybe you shouldn't be merciful here. And for a guy like me, I don't particularly live in the gray area of life. It's either it's kind of white or it's kind of black. But merciful encompasses a whole lot of things in life. So if you're you're not necessarily merciful, does that mean it's wrong? And we're going to get into some practical stuff a little bit later in this message. First of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain 
to the best of my ability. What is mercy? And I'm going to compare it to other stuff. And then at the latter part of the message, I'm going to talk about very practical stuff regarding mercy or not having mercy, or is this right or is this wrong? Because I feel that this, this message has to have legs, otherwise we all talk about mercy and it's a concept and we go home and go, wasn't that great? And you say, I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. It was really great, it was really interesting, but I have no idea what I'm gonna, how I'm going to apply this. Well, the second part of the message, I want to apply it. So the religion that Jesus faced during his ministry was superficial, it was shallow, it was very legalistic, it was external, it was not merciful. The Jews of the day, they thought they were in. They were Abraham's children, and they didn't have to be merciful. John the Baptist says in chapter 3 of Matthew, it says, but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, now imagine greeting some of the religious leaders this way, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So when, when John the Baptist says that, that you think that you're saved, you think that you're good because you're Abraham's children, that was very true. They had a religion that was external. We're Abraham's children. We have a sacrificial system. We have a temple. We are God's people. We're doing all of the right things, and they didn't have to have things that came from the heart. We just need to be externally right, and we're good. And Jesus came along and says, no, you're not good. In fact, if you continue what you're doing, you're going to be condemned for all eternity. So the, the concept of mercy runs deep with Jesus' ministry, but if you look at the Bible from cover to cover, mercy extends from cover to cover. We see mercy extended to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did we not? I mean, God made them close. He provided for them. They were excluded. There was consequences of their sin. They were excluded from the garden, and then we go all the way through Scripture, and we get all the way to the very end in Revelation at the judgment seat of the white throne, and we see mercy there as well. So you see mercy all the way through Scripture. So what does it mean to be a merciful person? Well, you'll see that I have an outline in the back, and I have some things that you can fill in, and hopefully that's going to be a little bit of a help to you and a little bit of a guide. But what we're going to be talking about first is what mercy is not. Mercy is not grace. It is not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That's just an easy way to remember grace. It's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, God gives unmerited favor towards guilty sinners who deserve the exact opposite. That is grace. Grace is used for God eliminating sin and guilt itself. So kind of get a bit of a handle, but grace and mercy are like first cousins. Okay? They're not exactly the same but they have some, some aspects of it that are the same because God extends mercy and grace to us, does he not? 
So grace is unmerited favor, but mercy refers to compassion or loving kindness extended to those who are in pain, anguish, or distress. Mercy is God relieving the consequences of sin. Mercy and grace are first cousins, but they're not the same. Second one, mercy is not something natural. Mercy is not something natural. Some men, or women, they're born cruel, or maybe they're born kind, whatever. Some are affectionate, and others are demanding. This passage is not addressing these types of people. The mercy described is a work done only by God. And we're going we're gonna to fill that in in a little bit. But the mercy we're talking about here is only a mercy that can be done by God. It is a mercy that is extended because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. I want to read this, this one line to you. If we divorce mercy from God's salvation in Christ, we are left with our own works. Put it another way. If I do merciful things and expect God to reward me for those, those are works of righteousness, meaning I have payment demanded. It's not mercy when payment is demanded. So you could say, you could say, mercy is not something natural. You're right, it's not. And for the for the Greek and for the Roman, neither one of them had mercy as a virtue. They didn't include it in their list of virtues. The Jews, they believed that it was likely to have the Lord's blessing if you were a, a person that was fierce and warlike and you were fired with resentment for the wrongs done to their country. So on the one hand, you had the Greeks and the Romans. They didn't have mercy as a virtue. The Jews, especially embodied in the Zealots, they believed that if you just hated your enemies and you showed them no mercy and you slaughtered them, that was receiving God's favor. For them, mercy was a sign of weakness. In fact, if you go back to the Roman culture, there was a phrase called patria potesta. Like, it was the, basically, it means the will of the father. And a father could have a slave killed at any time. Didn't like a slave, you could take a knife, kill him, bury him, Nobody would say anything because it was the right of the Roman father to run his household as he saw fit. In fact, it was, I'm not saying this was utilized very often, but you could have a Roman father could look at a newborn and the newborn would be held up and if the, he gave a thumbs up, the baby survived. Maybe it was a girl, he would give a thumbs down and it was immediately brought out and drowned now, we think that's really cruel, do we not? What is abortion? It's really no different. You have a parent that we like to sanitize, that an American, they, they hear that their, their girlfriend or whoever is, is pregnant, and they'll either give a thumbs up or not. It all depends on how they're going to respond to that pregnancy. The Romans, they just made it real blatant and said it is, the, it is the will of the Father and he can run his family any way he wants to. Third one, 
Mercy must never be confused with permissiveness. Mercy should never be confused with permissiveness. There is, here's your 25 cent word for the day. It's called an antinomian. An antinomian is a person who, was, who, said, who said that they were released by grace from the obligation of observing the moral law. How does that fit into what I just said? Well, mercy must never be confused with permissiveness. Some Christians, they go, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I don't want to be harsh with anybody. So essentially, everything goes. And they tag it with mercy. There is no moral law. That's an antinomian. There's no moral law because God's moral law can be strict. And I don't want to be strict. I want to be merciful. So I'm just going to be Mercy doesn't have anything to do with it at all. When mercy, pity, or compassion, get that, when mercy, pity, or compassion are divorced from justice, righteousness, and discipline, it's nothing more than a subjective feeling of sentimentality. Let's take the needle distribution in Seattle, the things that are going on there, is it makes somebody in government feel really good that we're doing this. It has nothing to do with discipline or righteousness or judgment. They just think they're having compassion. But it's coming out as sentimentality. It has nothing to do with mercy described in the Beatitudes. It has nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's mixing those. It's that permissiveness again. But we can go on and talk about some other aspects of mercy. This is all about what we have done and nothing to do with Christ when we are permissive and let people do whatever they want to do. God is exceedingly merciful. Can we agree? He is exceedingly merciful, yet he never overlooks or condones sin. But he is exceedingly merciful. We would all agree. But he never just glosses over or permits sin. When we interpret the term mercy in a biblical context, we must never do so at the expense of the moral law or God's righteousness. To do so is both wrong and dangerous. Fourth one. Mercy is not meritorious before God. You could say mercy does not earn us 
merits, okay? It earns us points. That's not the, the issue with the attitude. The idea with, with this mercy being meritorious, the idea is that God looks to see how we treat people. If we are first merciful towards them, then God will show us mercy. That is, if we're merciful, if we're merciful towards other people, then God will extend salvation to us. But then again, if we don't extend mercy to them, then we may be in a little bit of trouble. The progression of the Beatitudes shows that mercy is a needed characteristic of a person who has already been saved. And that is true. A person will display mercy if they are saved. Why? Because they have been shown mercy. That's the link. Is you are merciful to someone. Why? Because you realize your need for the Savior. You realize how what that, that you are what what does it say at the beginning of the of the Beatitudes? It says you're poor in spirit, knowing that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you mourn over your sin, that you are meek, knowing that you have nothing to offer the Savior. And because of all those, you go, I have been extended such mercy. Because of that, I will extend mercy to someone else. That is the the train of thinking regarding being merciful or not being merciful, it's not because it makes me feel good. It's not sentimentality. It's not to win points. It's not to gain favor with God. It's all about looking at Jesus Christ and knowing what he did for me. And as a response, I treat people in a particular way. That's what it's all about. The fifth one is mercy is not merely a feeling or attitude, but a way of thinking that it results in compassionate action. Being merciful is not just talk. It is action. And you can look at the mercy of God, and it says in Romans 8, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So now I'm gonna, I talked about what mercy is not. I want to talk about the exact opposite of mercy in a couple passages in Scripture. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew 9. And the reason I'm doing this, sometimes it's easier to explain what something is by directly saying what it is not. So we're just going to spend just a couple minutes on this. The first one is Matthew 9, starting at verse 10, and this is Jesus. He says, and as Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold... Many collectors, tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. So mercy is contrasted with sacrifice. There's a consult. So you go, well, well, what has that got to do with each other? Well, this is the point. This particular quotation that Jesus made was from Hosea 6, 6. 
And in this particular passage in Hosea, God accuses the people that their love is like the dew on the grass. It's there for a brief morning hour, and then it's gone. And all that is left is empty form of burnt offerings. So what has that got to do with this particular passage with Jesus sitting with the tax collectors? This is what it is. is the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were interested in being legalistic, doing the right thing, checking the right box, and, oh, we can't sit with tax collectors and sinners. We, we can't do that. Jesus is coming in there and saying, these people are in need of a physician, and I can offer them eternal life. All you're thinking about is checking the right box to make sure that you're seen doing the right things from an external position. It has, in other words, you go make a sacrifice, you've checked the box, and then you go live any way you want to live. And he says, and all you're left with is, is this dead animal on the, on the altar, but your heart doesn't have any change. There's nothing that's changed on the inside. You're just doing it on the outside like you would a sacrifice. It's an external expression, but there's nothing that's changed in the inside. Jesus says, I want to have mercy, not sacrifice, meaning I want to have a change on the inside where who you are on the inside shines through, and these tax collectors and sinners are in need of a Savior, and all you care about is external appearances. Those are contrasted. So are we just concerned with external appearances. We need to look good. There's nothing wrong with looking good as long as you have a change on the inside. The next passage is, oh, where is it? Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, the word hypocrite means actor. That is exactly what it means, it's actor. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the second contrast is mercy versus straining out a gnat. Those are two opposite. They're, they're, they're contrasted. So what does Jesus mean by straining out a gnat? Let me give you the context of the, the passage is tithing. You tithe with mint, dill, and cumin. Okay? Stra straining out a gnat is when we sit here and wring our hands and go, should we tithe on our gross or on our net? Should I tithe on the extra money that I get from, from selling metal to Z's? I make, you know, $87.33 a year, so should I tithe on that? Should I tithe on my birthday money? Should I do that? And after we get done discussing this, we're exhausted. We're just, oh, we're just exhausted because we have, we have looked at this and, oh, we want to be right, you know, we want to be fair to our Lord and we want to tithe what we're supposed to tithe. And he goes, are you kidding me? You're, you're getting all hung up on these little insignificant details, but you're let, letting the weightier things of justice, mercy, and faith fall on the floor. 
You're exhausted from going over this trivial details. And he goes, really? That's all. So mercy is compared with don't get caught up in trivia. Don't get caught up in these little things. When Jesus says don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, he means beware of going through the day only doing trivial things, thinking only trivial thoughts and feeling only trivial feelings. The The Lord wants us to live with a changed heart and be an authentic person and not get caught up in, but you know, do you, think, do you think we should have these yellow flowers? Maybe they should be red. And we have a big discussion about should we have a red flower or a yellow flower. He goes, really? That's what you're going to spend your time on is discussing trivia? That is not what he means here by mercy. He goes on. And I gave you some biblical examples of mercy. And I am not, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to go over all of them. Some of you are starting to sweat like crazy. We're not, we're not going to do that. I'm only going to be referring in, in passing to the last one, which is the Good Samaritan. But each of these examples of mercy have some of the same attributes. And I want to give you four dimensions of mercy, and they're, they're just below the, the examples of mercy. The first example is they see distress. And in the Good, good Samaritan, we can, just, we can just use that as an example. I could use any of them. But, but it said that, that there was a man, and probably he was a Jew. He was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's not particularly far. It's like five miles or something like that. And it's just, just sand hills, just sand hills. And he's walking from, Jericho, or from Jerusalem to Jericho. And some robbers come out, and they beat him, and they rob him. And by and by, a a priest comes by on the road, and he sees this this Jew all beat up, and he passes on the other side. And then a Levite does the same, and he sees this Jew, and he passes on the other side. And then a Samaritan, and a Samaritan is a half-Jew, and they are despised. They are hated. And this particular Samaritan took the man and took him into an inn and paid for his his care and says, if you need any more, I'm going to be coming back in a few days and I will pay you for anything else that you may need. And the four dimensions of mercy is he sees distress. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him. And the second part is, is there's a heart of compassion or pity. There is a heart of compassion for pity. The third one is there's a practical effort to help. There's a practical effort to help. He poured wine and oil on his wounds, and he set him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and had him taken care of. And the final one is, he did all of these things in spite of enmity. And there was enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it would be very similar to us in some capacity going out here and and helping one of the other ethnic groups other than Dutch other than fair havenish as well. So it'd be like us going out there and you go, you go, what? In fact, we won't go there. This is going off script. It's a dangerous thing to do. <clears throat> going on, so you said it, the, the four points are an eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help, and in spite of enmity, and that is mercy. So now I want to get into a practical area of mercy and what that looks like. And should a merciful person always show mercy? 
should a merciful person always show mercy? Is that not what the Beatitude talks about? Is blessed are the merciful, so they shall, for they will obtain mercy. Real life is very complex for Christian people who seriously want to live out their faith in a sinful world. We could ask the question just kind of as an overview. Can a, can a Christian be a prosecuting attorney? Can they do that? Because a prosecuting attorney oftentimes is not very merciful. So how do you merge those two? Well, I'm going to talk about four spheres of life. Four spheres of life, and the first sphere is going to be the family. Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a parent who spanks a child for disobedience instead of turning the other cheek to the child's insolence or disobedience? Can you do that in the sphere of a family? What about the sphere of business or economics? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be an employer who pays good wages for, an ex for excellent work but dismisses irresponsible employees who do shoddy work? Can you do that if you're a merciful person? What about the sphere of government and law enforcement? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a legislator who enacts stiff laws that give large penalties for drunk driving and child abuse. Can you be merciful? And can you also be involved in government in that capacity? Or what about this one, the final one, the sphere of the church? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be on a church board who follows the biblical mandate for church discipline and excommunicates a member for unforsaken public sin? Doesn't sound very merciful to me. Can you do that? Well, how would you do that? Well, in, to the answer to each of these questions is a mingling of both mercy and justice. There's always a mingling of mercy and justice. God's will, sometimes, is that we repay people with what they deserve, whether punishment or reward. And an attribute of God is justice not fairness. An attribute of God is not fairness. The attribute of God is justice. And sometimes it is right and good that we administer justice. Sometimes it's God's will that we compensate people with better than what they deserve. It's called mercy. In upholding the claims of justice, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of justice. And in showing mercy, we bear witness to the fact that God is a God of mercy. He is both. They're both within his character, character being justice or just and merciful. So let's take the sphere of the family. A biblical parent will usually follow the wisdom that sparing the rod spoils the child. But there will be times when a child's fault will be forgiven without punishment, to teach the meaning of mercy and to woo the child to Christ. There's a mingling of mercy and justice. So the child can certainly be disciplined. God instructs us in his word to do that, but there can also be a mingling of mercy in that. The second one where you could talk about the uh, sphere of business or economics. 
A biblical employer will usually pay a fair wage and insist on good workmanship. But there will be times when he will pay more than a person deserves and go an extra mile with a sick, aging, or distressed, or inadequately trained employee. And I have seen that at Angar. It's not advertised. But they'll have an employee who is going through stuff that probably very few people know about, and the, the owners will see to it that they're given extra help, that they're, they, they go behind the scenes and they help, and they show mercy, and it isn't, well, if you can't put in eight, eight hours' work, you're fired. It isn't that at all. They have a mingling of this, this can only go so long, and then something needs to change, but in my over five years there, I've never, had, never seen anybody unjustly let go because they have biblical principles at work that, yes, they want to have a, a day's work for a day's pay, but they're not going to just get rid of somebody should they become sick or distressed or aging or injured. Regarding the sphere of government or law enforcement, a biblical judge will usually be scrupulous when, when sentencing criminals according to the grievousness of their crimes, but there will be times when he will dispense clemency or mercy for some greater good. And finally, regarding the church, a church board will call public sin to the church to account and exercise discipline and even exclusion from fellowship, but a, but a church should also recognize the parable of the wheat and the tares that teaches patience and the imperfection of the church till the end of the age. And I have been involved in releasing a person from membership because of willful, unrepentant sin. And you go, you go and you're involved in something like this with the knowledge that but for the grace of God go I. You go, you go at it with a humble spirit, wanting this person to come back. You don't want to exclude them from fellowship. So there's this mingling of justice. You need to do what you need to do, but you can, you can infuse mercy into what you're doing. I have listed in the bulletin how mercy is dispensed today, and this is a very short list. There's all kinds of ways that mercy is dispensed. But I want to bring our, bring our, our message to a close this morning regarding the example in Matthew 18, verse 21, where it talks about the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18, verse 21. I'm just going to read that. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, it says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me up to seven times? And, I, and I'd like you to take a look at the heading on this. The heading is not inspired word of God. It is clarity uh, an organization for Scripture, but it says the parable of the unmerciful servant. And what was the question Peter just asked? Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Forgive? There is a mingling of mercy, forgiveness, and justice. This this parable is called the, the parable of the unmerciful servant, not the unforgiving servant. And we see the one servant, he owed his master 
uh, many, many fortunes. It was just millions and millions of dollars, and the master forgave him. And then this same servant went to somebody else who owed him a few denarii, which is a few dollars. And the, the second servant says, please be patient with me, and I will pay what you owe. But the first servant grabs him by the throat and says, you will pay me now. And he took the second servant and had him thrown into prison. And well, there were passerbys or, or people who were standing by, and they went to the original master and says, do you know what your servant did? The one that you forgave the millions of dollars? And the, the master called the servant in and says, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all your debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And that passage is linked with Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. But if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The point is, what is our internal thoughts towards others? Certainly we can be merciful and we can be just. And, it, and as James 1 says, that we should pray for wisdom, knowing when to do what and in what, what measure that looks like. But part of the Beatitudes is as a response to what Christ has done for us, that we are spiritually bankrupt, we will be merciful to others because we have obtained mercy. And the way that you dispense mercy now will also come to light in the future time. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will, future tense, they will be shown mercy. Next week, we're going to talk about blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I'm hoping it's a little more tangible than this one was, but hopefully this made some sense because it's, it's a difficulty to merge something that, that there can be the opposite, mercy and justice. To merge those together can be really difficult. But anyway, let's close in prayer for a moment and then we'll have some closing songs. Father, thank you for your word and for your goodness to us and may we be a people that are ready to see the distress of others that has a heart of compassion, that has a practical effort to help, even in spite of enmity.